everyone, and welcome to another Scotsway podcast. And I'm joined once again by Rog Glass to learn more about Grey Day 2023. Now, Grey Day is the annual celebration of the life and work of Alistair Grey, and there's no one better to talk to about it than Rog. Hello, Rog. Hi, Ali. Lovely to see you. How are you? I'm really well. Good to see you too. So for those who don't know, can you tell us about Grey Day? Yeah, of course. Okay, so... Uh... Alice Gray was born in 1934, died at the end of 2019. Um, and in the short time after his death, there was a really quick turnaround there had to be to work out what was going to happen with these things and how immediately would people respond to this event. And partially that's because it was so quickly followed by the very first lockdowns of, yeah. uh, of COVID. Um, I think several things happened at the same time. One was that a lot of his physical artifacts had to be found a home for um, because Alistair didn't own his own home. And so a lot of it had to be moved out. Saoirse Dallas at the Alistair Gray Archive and others did a fantastic job of recording and finding a physical home for this thing. And that's been built since. But alongside that, there are, of course, conversations with Canongate, his main publisher, Bloomsbury, the archive, family, friends, uh, hangers on such as me, uh, increasingly long in the tooth about like how would Alistair's legacy be recognised. In many ways, because he'd been ill and in and out of a coma before he died, there were certain things that he had plenty of opportunity to be super clear about. Mm -hmm. And so that was easy. But Alistair, although having spent a large part of his life self-promoting, that's his word, uh, she would say with a spark, you know, sparkling eye, but despite the fact that he'd done that, he was always very uncomfortable with celebration of himself. Yeah. And one of the things that happens when people become fans of your work and then that work spreads around the place is that you're not in control of that anymore. And when people die, folks that are interested in that, that person's work want to have a way of remembering it. Yeah. Now, there was a bit of a model with uh, Bloomsday that's taken place and that, that started in Dublin and is now uh, all over the world uh, in recognition of this l little known modernist writer called James Joyce. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah. But anyway, uh, on that model, Canongate and others decided that they would try and do something along similar lines and call it, it Grey Day. The first one was weird because it was deep in lockdown mm. and was only online, but it involved... Uh, myself and people like Ali Smith and Denise Minor and uh, lots of great writers um, reading from uh, Lanark on its 40th anniversary, uh, talking a little bit about the value of the work and focusing very much on the work rather than on the man too much, um, mm. which was a, a long time frustration for Alistair, as I know that you know. He often talked about himself and then complained of other people talking about him. Uh, so we tried squarely to keep the focus on the work. And then the second year, uh, run by Noiriki, uh, and uh, again, in concert with Canongate and the archive, was in person, and that was wonderful, focused on uh, Alistair's final three books of, of poetry, responding to Dante. Um, and this is the third year. Um, and I expect it to just keep growing and to have a different focus e each year, and this year is Poor Things. Yes, and why poor things this year? What was the uh, thinking behind that? Because it's a novel, well, I don't know, would it be his third most famous one after Lanark and Janine, would you think, say? Uh, I'd probably put it second right. ahead of Janine. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing about Alistair's work is that though he published such a vast amount over 40 years, since Lanark was published, that has kept growing exponentially in a way that 
sort of dwarfed everything else at, a cer- at certain periods. Yeah. Um, and certainly when Alistair's literary reputation was at its height and his visual artistic reputation was still very, very small. Now, as I know that you know, that's kind of evened out mm-hmm. a, quite a bit between the visual art and the literature over the last 10 or 15 years, but still Lanark has dominated. And they're still giving Lanark to school kids, of, uh, you know, who would uh, rather run five miles than read a 600-page <laughs> grim book like Lanark, which is full of absolutely glorious things, but it's a decent way to put kids off, in my view. Um, so I am trying to answer your question, but just in a, a, a roundabout way, which is which is my want. But I think Lanark has dominated so much, it's up until recently been quite hard to identify, uh, apart from Lanark, which are the best-known works. Now, Alistair repeatedly said partly to be an awkward bugger and to have some fun, that 1982 Janine was undoubtedly my best novel and kept repeating that. Yeah. The bigger and bigger that Lanark got as a sort of reaction against it, as a way of pointing to that novel. Um, but though critically incredibly well received, that never really had the impact at the time that something like Poor Things did, which was a real exception. And in the research that I did for my biography on Alistair 100 years ago, this was something that really fascinated me. So it instantly won a major literary award, which was rare for Alistair. Yeah, you remember that Lanark never even made a book, a long list, never mind a short list. Yeah. And he was so routinely seen as, you know, obviously too Scottish for the English, which is simply not true, but was something that was that kept on being repeated. But having won the Whitbread and the Guardian Fiction Prize um, in London, basically, through people sitting around tables in London talking about the best books of the year, that had a real breakthrough effect that things like Lanark just hadn't had outside of a particularly Scottish cultural context or a sort of niche or cult context. So poor things always got to people that Lanark would have never have reached. There's also the fact that Frank Frankenstein and the fact that poor things is a, a creative response to story of Frankenstein that gave it a universal appeal mm-hmm. that something like Lanark or 1982 Janine never had um so that was a factor and also it was so playful and accessible and fun and light and uh it was sending up certain types of Victoriana in the way that you didn't see elsewhere in in Alistair's work so it was it was also kind of inclusive and inviting uh in a way that the other books weren't necessarily so it was always the one that I said, anybody who said to me, well, what do you do? And when I started talking about Alistair, they'd go, well, what do I read first? I would always say poor things because it was yeah. so inviting as a book. You asked about why that book this year. And the reason is simple. It's because after several decades of false starts and maybe this is and maybe that's and scraping together a few quid or low cost film rights here or there suddenly it's going to be an absolute Hollywood blockbuster, yeah. which is astonishing, really. I mean, way beyond anything that Alistair would have ever imagined himself. And he did do scripts and he did sell the film rights several times. Um, so it's going to first be on screens at Cannes in May, and then it will depend on how the film does. It may well then dwarf everything else in Alistair's over at least for a while. Will certainly dominate the way that his work is is seen in certain contexts. So this is a really good time to return to poor things. I think um, there's often a, the tyranny of the round number. Like you can only celebrate something if it's a decade or it was hundred years or something. And it's not a round number for poor things, but it is a really interesting moment for poor things. And um, as a fan, when I went back and reread this book for the first time in more than ten years myself, 
it's really worth celebrating. Really, really worth celebrating. I went back with sort of with half an eye closed, fearing that I'd read it and go, oh dear, <laughs> this doesn't stand up very well. But on the contrary, you know, it's stronger than ever. Absolutely. There's a few things that are interesting to pick up there. One, the idea that Lanark maybe, it seems to almost have been like word of mouth and it's over a long period of time that that's how it's kind of reputation is, you know, oh, you haven't read Lanark, you must read Lanark, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, a bit like, a, uh, for me, a Blue Nile album that people, mm. you know, it became big through over a longer period of time. Yeah. Whereas Poor Things was that kind of, a, it, it hit quickly like a, like Shuggy Bane maybe, you know, it yeah. was a big hit at the time. And as just people picked up in their year roundups and things like that. Mm -hmm. As a result, I haven't read it since it came out. So it's a long, long time. I must go back to it. Um, a, a, oh, yeah, I saw fun. this was Yeah. I have great fun. I mean, you're absolutely right about the way that things were with Lanark. When I first arrived in Glasgow in 1997, as an 18, 19 year old, one of the very first things that was said to me uh, by uh, new friends that I met was, have, if you're going to live here, you should learn about this place. And the best way to do it is, have you heard of this book, Lanark? And I was a you know nerdy bookish kid from the north of England. I'd never come across it. Yeah. And so I thought, all oh, right, well, I better read that. And it was word of mouth, but you're right about poor things being a contrast. I mean, if you can imagine it, because Alistair found it so incredibly challenging to travel. Mm. He didn't have any of the tools that you would need to make for an easy, st stressless traveling life. There was an American tour for poor things. Wow. It was a proper American tour. Incredible, really, looking back on it. And um, and a very reputable publisher over there. And the begin it, it's so easy with any writer or artist to go, well, that's the one work that matters, and that, that begat everything else. It's never as simple as that. Um, poor things is a good example of the various different ways in which Alistair's reputation has grown. You know, I I still think that for teenagers that arrive in Glasgow now that don't know anything about it and that are bookish, folk will say to them, well, if you're going to live here, you should read Lanark. I don't think that's changed. It's just grown and grown uh, yeah. slowly, like a Blue Nile album. I'll take that reference. <laughs> and the other thing is the film, who which I kind of knew about. It was in the back of my head there, but then I knew I was going to be talking to you, so I looked back into it. And it's Yorgos Lanthimos and Emma Stone and uh, Willem Dafoe and Mark Ruffalo. This is really <laughs> huge, huge, you know? For those of us who've been talking to blank-faced people, talking <laughs> about why Alistair Gray matters for the last 20 or 30 years, it's really kind of hard to compute, isn't it? And yeah. you can get a bit dizzy by these things and think, oh my God, well, it must he must be real then if, if there's all this external validation. And, one thing worth noting, I think, is that this will definitely be a multicultural reimagining in the way yeah. that lots of literary adaptations are now and should be. And it will go to all sorts of places that Alistair couldn't possibly have imagined himself. And so you'll get that old thing of anybody who's coming to the film expecting a reproduction of the book will have all sorts of complaints, I imagine. Yeah. I was reading something that uh, about the very first silent films short silent films at the beginning you know, around the early 20th century and about 75 percent of them were adaptations of novels um and that's still a, a very large um like rich territory for many filmmakers is having a base text with which to respond to but Alistair's way when he was alive was to try and control all of those elements mm -hmm. and he has no control now yeah. Um, so you, I think you've got to go in with that with your eyes open and also just 
like welcoming something that could be very different uh, or undermine or challenge sort of ex certain expectations that were in the in the original novel i just say to people enjoy it for what it is hopefully it'll be good and it'll bring more people back to alistair's work never mind the details of yeah. you know, who exactly how the scripts have been done or how much they use glasgow or don't um it's just such a wonderful story that in two ways two key ways that it's continually poking away at things that were also actually in 1982 janine and commented on more there perhaps which is the ways in which men seek to control women and the ways in which the British Empire sought to control mm. communities around the world. And if it's got any of that about it, it'll be great. I mean, I, I'm such a book-focused person often yeah. that I'm not always completely conscious of exactly who is a world superstar, but even I know that Yorgos Lanthimos and Emma Stone, that'll bring some attention, yeah. won't it? Uh, and I'm genuinely really looking forward to going to see it and seeing how this thing that Alistair what wanted so much to make when he was alive but do it in a particular way how it can be gloriously taken out of your hands you're talking about somebody who did a sketched i'm sure you've seen this ali like sketched pictures graphic novel style mm -hmm. uh, script storyboard for a lanark film that was never made or hasn't been made as yet and he did scripts for poor things and around the time that i did my biography there was a lot of chatter about a version that would have Robert Carlyle and Helena Bonham Carter in it. Right. And the more digging I got did, the more I realized that these were dreams rather than realities yeah. for some of the people talking about them. But there has been in various ways, lots of different pushes for poor things over that period. But Alistair had such clear ideas about exactly how he wanted to do things. He wasn't the sort of writer that would go, well, my book is my book, that's not going anywhere. If you want to make something, good luck. He wanted to be involved in every yeah. detail. Um, but the work goes beyond you whether you want it to or not and this is just one way that it will and it made me think um, am I right in saying Alistair's in the book himself yes thing? yes very good given the, given the amount of time you said it was since you read it uh, you've got a good memory uh, well he's done it before <laughs> of course yeah yeah <laughs> if you got it wrong we could have gone back and cut that yeah. but um, no it is, uh, as Bernard McLaverty has talked about very eloquently, and he will do on the night of Grey Day, it's an incredibly special thing that we have Bernard still with us and with such an incredibly lucid memory of how Poor Things was made. Uh, Poor Things is a box inside a box inside a box inside a box. And the first uh, box that you get access to is Alistair Grey, mm -hmm. in uh, quotation marks, as he so often is, um, talking about how he found this found text and it's very knowingly a type of book that is always, you know, there were all sorts of Victorian novels in which, oh, the, here, here comes a found text. Mm -hmm. um, and he that was a, a knowing nod, but he, found, he finds it on the streets of Glasgow. The real characters there at the beginning are Michael Donnelly and Elspeth King, which were two of his earliest supporters in the People's Palace in 1977-9. Elspeth King was one of very, very few people who wasn't already just a close pal of Alistair's who decades ago was celebrating his visual art. And that was the first job that he ever got as a visual artist, was as artist recorder in the People's Palace Museum. His job was to record the changing, and in Alistair's view, disappearing city of Glasgow. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that was drawn upon at the beginning of Poor Things, where Alistair playfully says, you know, Michael Donnelly and I disagree about this fan manuscript. Of course they didn't. He's just crediting Donnelly and King's work as people who 
sought to retain the past of Glasgow. And he introduces this text by Archie McCandless in which he claims that his wife, uh, Bella Baxter, uh, was in fact a 25-year-old pregnant woman who committed suicide in Glasgow and whose uh, and the brain of the baby was used and put in the adult woman's head. She was reborn, Frankenstein-like, by the hand of Godwin Baxter, who is often abbreviated to God. He's the mm -hmm. God character. Um, and then this represents quite a chunk of the book, that text that is written by Archie McCandless, looking back on his life and saying, this incredible thing happened and nobody knew. This is it's around the time that you know, there are a lot of um, folk in Glasgow that were considered to be, you know, the absolute uh, cutting edge of what was happening in and what was possible in science at the time. So it's full of that colour. But then there are several other texts, not least um, Bella or Victoria's own text that comes later. She says that she was never called that, where she is undermining and arguing with and challenging her husband's view of what happened. And basically she says he's mad. And it's up to readers to decide whether this was a real thing or not. But so yes, Alistair is in it. He calls himself editor. Yeah. He explains his choice to call the, the whole text poor things because initially it has this really sort of dry 19th century medics title that nobody can remember. Um, and nearly all the characters are at one point or another referred to as a poor thing. Um, and Alistair alters various illustrations. He decides what order the texts go in. But that's a character, as it is with in so many of Alistair's works. Yeah. You know, he might tell you he's being an editor, but really he's being a joker. I just now wonder if he's played by Willem Dafoe in the film. That would be quite the... I wonder. <laughs> I wonder. I don't know. Anyone might... could pull it off. I think Willem Dafoe might be able to. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I'd have to go on IMDb. I'm a bit yeah. obsessed with IMDb these days. But I uh, remember how in the olden days you'd watch something on the TV and then go... Oh, didn't he used to be married to so, such a book? Didn't they used to be in? Weren't they in such a thing? And you'd always be wrong. And now, of course, that joy is gone. You just look it up immediately. Yeah. There's some satisfaction in it. I'll need to go back and check exactly who's supposed to be playing who or doing what. But my my initial uh, assumption, and you should never make assumptions, mm -hmm. is was that uh, Alistair would be deleted somehow. Yeah. And yeah. really, it would just be about these disputed stories or that largely the story of Bella would would take up most of the space but you know that's part of the fun for me too I got this novel for my 21st birthday off my uncle and aunt mm -hmm. and it's given me so much joy ever since and I'm here I am 45 and I'm excited about it coming out in the movies and I don't know what's going to be in it yeah uh, but I do know that whatever happens with the novel that I really believe that that, sorry, whatever happens with the film, I do believe that the novel deserves more attention. Yeah. And that things like Grey Day are a really great opportunity, particularly because we're not all going to be alive forever. You know, please God, Bernard McClaverty will live for a, to be 120 and then some, but he's in his 80s mm -hmm. and he's got this memory of the process in which Poor Things was written. And so these are really quite special occasions, I think, that won't last forever. And it could also only really happen in Glasgow and only happen under Alistair's Oren Moore Night Sky. But maybe I should explain Bernard's involvement with the process. Would that be okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as ever, in my excitement, I start at the end and end up at the beginning. So, Alistair lived around the corner from Bernard McClaverty. For and for those that don't know, um, Bernard's originally from Belfast, fantastic Northern Irish writer who resettled in Glasgow 
uh, in the 1970s and is very, very, for a very long time, been a hugely critical part of the classical literary landscape, made huge contributions across literature and film as well. And a really gracious, gentle, understated artist who is always celebrating others and underplaying his own work. But as it happened, he lived only two streets away from Alistair. And in the 1980s, they started playing chess together every week, mm-hmm. just for fun. And um, uh, Alistair would go around and they would often talk to each other about what they were writing. But because Alistair had a sort of similar verbal diarrhea to me, he would usually end up just talking at Bernard and then reading him things and doing all the voices and the characters. Yeah, yeah I've had that experience. And yeah, so- I know you have, and it's, it's <laughs> something else, right? So in the early 1990s, Alistair had promised several books to several different publishers, was behind on absolutely everything, had no money and was totally exhausted. And he promised to Bloomsbury a collection of short stories, which eventually became 10 Tales Tall and True, which for those that don't know, had 14 tales in it and most of them were false. But that, again, that, that's that's typical of the artist. Now, Poor Things was supposed to be a short story in that book and started out that way, just a handful of pages, five pages that Alistair read to um, to Bernard, uh, uh, one of the, the more clearly Frankenstein ish sections and Bernard the way he describes it just goaded Alistair and pushed him to keep expanding it and expanding it he saw a real potential in it so come back and let's play chess next week and give me more and each time he did that there was another box and another box and another box in which the story you thought you understood was being um, put inside something else and then you had to rethink what was real and what was unreal and so it was a kind of game it was a genuinely playful game between two friends and um, I'm really fond of that kind of story because I know from being in writing communities in this city for a long time that these are the things that can make the difference to whether you get something finished, to whether it's any good, you know, to whether you can understand the thing that you're doing. Do you have another writer that you can talk to about it, that you trust, that can give you advice and that can help guide you and can also challenge you over certain things as well? So that's what happened with Bernard and Alistair. And like 1982, Janine, it came mushroomed out of nowhere. Right. Almost no time. And so then Ten Tales Tall and True had to be put back. That book remained unfinished. Poor Things was finished. It was published by Bloomsbury as a surprise for them. Um, one they were very happy to have. And then off you go. Um, so that's how Poor Things came to be. So Bernard is one of the, the five writers on the stage at Grey Day. And he'll be able to talk in his just fantastically soothing, gentle, generous way about how this thing came to be. That sounds a wonderful image. Almost like you could imagine that becoming a play, couldn't you? One stage, the chessboard, and these two literary giants, kind of. Definitely. Do you want to write that, or shall I? <laughs> yeah, we could, give it a go. we could give it a go. I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, so you've mentioned the evening of of uh, Grey Day, and it's going to be at Oran Moor. So now I think would be a good time to kind of talk about what people can expect in the lineup yeah. because it's a fantastic lineup. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the first one I want to talk about is Chitarama Swami. Um, so one of the things that's been the most fun in developing what we now uh, call, and I always imagine Alistair's voice in my head doing an overly grand, grey studies. We've now developed grey studies. You can't just yeah. like his stuff. You have to be into grey studies. Uh, and it's the thing of glory. And there are all sorts of different ways in which you can respond to Alistair's work, the visual art, the literature, the relationship between the two, which is what we did at the Alistair Great Conference last year, 
last time you and I were on a Scots Way podcast together. Yeah. And um, as part of that, what we started doing was to try and find money to commission new works that responded to Alistair's works. And um, the reason for that was rooted in Alistair's own process. So I'm about to explain as briefly as I can the way that Alistair's work was a series of creative responses and what Chitra has now done as others have done before her in order to make something new of her own that is also recognizing a debt to the work of Alistair Gray. So from Alistair's very first short story, which he thought was any good, which was The Star, um, which was first published in Collins Magazine for Boys and Girls in 1951. I'm sure you know it well. He was on a walking holiday with his dad in Arran and got this bolt of lightning that, oh, what a brilliant idea for a story. Rushed away, wrote it down. It was three pages. He thought, my first original story, amazing. And then, of course, two days later, realised that although there were lots of elements that were his and he transposed it into Glasgow and invented new things and put the Glasgow tenement into it and a Glasgow classroom, actually, the root of the idea was in H.G. Wells' story, The Crystal Egg, which is much, much longer and very different in various ways. But like the key image of this thing that was swallowed or hidden, that came from H.G. Wells. So at that point, Alistair could decide to either go, well, it's not mine and put it away. And go, that's what plagiarism looks like, or to get in the habit of celebrating and pointing to the work of others whilst also claiming new work as your own. And he decided to do the latter. So almost any major work of Alistair's across visual or literary art you care to look at is a creative response of some kind, and usually to a previous work that he's now put in a new or a Scottish or a Glaswegian or a working class context. So we took that idea and decided to create commissions for writers of a younger generation, more diverse writers, writers that weren't just kind of wandering up and down Byers Road in 1979, yeah. and to have the faith that those people would find something in the work and make something new of their own value. So Juana Adcock did a brilliant um, book called Vestigial, which was a series of poems responding to Lanark. Mm -hmm. um, we had Michael Pedersen, a poet and great nonfiction writer as well. Uh, who did a, a creative response to Alistair's green chair in the archive, right. which Alistair had recycled himself. Um, and uh, and we've had others too. I won't go through them all now, but Chitras is the latest. And she's done the most extraordinary thing. I'm a huge fan of Chitras and bore people to death about why I think she's amazing. Um, we didn't exactly know what she would produce, but we knew that from her book, Homelands in particular, that... She has this real talent for being able to do autobiography and biography of people and places at the same time. Yeah. So she was invited to the archive and she came through to work there and was sort of in the landscape. And she's produced this series of micro essays called Rich Things. And uh, they all are single page, mm -hmm. uh, but they're all coherent and work together. And we would hope we hope to publish them as we published Juana's book and various others in the past. Um, and like Alistair's own approach, it includes others. There's a whole section on Agnes Owens, for example, of course, doesn't have an archive of her own, um, as uh, as many folk who aren't white men don't, no matter their contribution. And uh, in places, Chitra's rich things kind of points at the injustices around the canal and where the archive is actually placed, like mm -hmm. ask questions about the history of that building, you know, the tobacco lords that either built that place or named it after themselves or sanitized it to hide away things that they'd done. And 
it acts in conversation with the place the archive is and with poor things the text it's right. just glorious um she's only just delivered it it's not been seen publicly ever anywhere before and this will be the first reading from it and then we'll edit it and hope to publish it further down the line fantastic um, and we should say for people who don't know the archive is it is it the whiskey bonds building is that the name of it yeah absolutely so at it's the at the, top of the canal which again i think a lot of people in glasgow unless they they work or live in that area i don't really know the canal area of glasgow no not at all and it is really very beautiful mm. I mean, particularly on a sunny day it's slightly different when it's pushing it down but it is really beautiful and also if you make your way up to it up the steps or up the ramp mm -hmm. to the canal there's a commission of Alistair's own words embedded into the landscape up there, which is absolutely beautiful as well. Um, so it really feels like his part of the city. And of course, it's an important part of Lanark where that happened as well. Um, but like any other part of Glasgow, it's continually being remade and things are being disappeared. And Alistair had this obsession with like, what was being disappeared about the city, its people and places. He was always looking to record those things. So the archive makes a really ideal spot. And that's where many of his physical things are. And for the first year or two it existed after he died, it was really hard to get anybody there because of the lockdowns. Mm. And there's this huge demand for folk that can just, anybody can go in, it's public. You can yeah. go in for free and put the gloves on and go through Alistair's uh, works, half-finished works, notebooks, um, sit in the chair, be at the desk, be in amongst um, all of his things in his library. And, um, and that's a really precious thing that isn't necessarily, You've got to defend it or else it's not going to be there in the future. Um, I, I'm a really um, passionate advocate for it. I just think uh, it represents so many good things about how we can use the way that artists went about their work as a kind of moral guide for how we should act with that work after that person has died. Now, one of the absolute gifts of Alistair's work is that he had really clear views on those sorts of things about what yeah. was ethical. Um, yeah. And he was determinedly inclusive. Um, so... You know, those things can can really help to shape what the archive looks like and what Social Dallas has done there is just it's just incredible. So they're hosting the night mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've not gone through everybody that's that's on the bill and there's loads of other great things too, uh, music. And uh, I haven't mentioned Michael Pedersen, for example, who'll be reading his creative commission too. Um, but we also have a period where we, we just talk about the novel itself, talk about the characters, how has the novel aged? What does it look like? Um, and... It'll be a revisiting for lots of people in the room, I think, because like yeah. you and me before I just reread it a couple of weeks ago, um, or like anything we read as children, you know, we have an idea of the thing in our memories, but so much we forget and so much we experience differently when we approach it later on in life. That's why I'm looking forward to going back myself, you know, because, yeah, it's quite a difference from reading it at 22 to 52-ish. Oh, uh, you'll, laugh, you'll laugh your head off. Yeah, uh, the way that Chitra put it in in Rich Things is that she said that when she read Poor Things, as a uh, as a student at Glasgow University, that she thought it was a novel about feminism, and then she went back to read it in her early forties. She thought it was a novel about colonialism. There's both of those things are deep deeply embedded in the work. Um, Bella is sent off to you know to see the world. But mm -hmm. by men who are seeking to control the way that she sees that world and to quote protect her from certain things that the eyes of a gentle Scottish woman shouldn't have to see, um, and of course she she chooses to open her eyes herself and and rebels in all sorts of interesting ways. But 
I think that I won't speak for anybody else, but certainly for me as a younger reader, and this is what Chitra was saying as well, it felt like a novel that was that had this sort of feminist icon at its heart. Mm-hmm. A young woman who accelerates in her education bizarrely fast and starts asking question of, questions of the men around her who couldn't see those questions coming. But I didn't notice a lot of that stuff about colonialism. I'd forgotten everything, like the scenes where she's on a boat surrounded by business folk and people that have got roles in the British Empire who genuinely believe that, you know, you've got to keep down the savages for their own good. Uh, And there are extended debates with these men um, as they're all sitting around on these glorious boats passing through wherever it is they're passing through. And um, certainly for me returning to it now, all of that colonial weight seemed to be so heavy i was like how could i have missed this mm. even the back section which is full of illustrations and sketches um they're often colonial photographs of you know british colonial emperors for one of a much better word having their feet kissed and or shoes shined um by uh indigenous peoples i mean what alistair insisted upon then in all of his novels as a way of poking out and pointing out injustices and hidden injustice. All of that, I think, can only speak to people more powerfully now because mm-hmm. it's more openly a part of the conversation about our society. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at the major institutions of the country, look at the major universities of the country, how those institutions talk about their own buildings and their colonial legacies, um, the way that so many Scots talk in different language now about the role that various Scots played in the British Empire. Yeah. It's a much more complex picture and one that we more openly talk about. But this was written over 30 years ago. Yeah. And that a lot of the language that we would use now to describe that, I'm not saying none of it existed, that's too reductive, but it certainly evolved. Yeah, it wasn't really been written about, certainly not in, in, in Scotland, I would suggest. I can't think of another novel that does. I mean, I'm sure there must be out yeah. there, there always is. You should never oh, There's always an example to pull you up and go, oh, yeah, yeah. No, and, they, and they'd be quite right to. Yeah, I've, yeah, of I've course. only read what I've read. I'm sure it must be out there, but it was certainly a rare thing, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you've mentioned uh, Chitra, Michael Pedersen, um, Bernard's going to be there. Can you tell us, uh, anyone else? It's, I believe Mr. Bissett, Alan Bissett, may be involved. Yeah, uh, Alan's going to be uh, hosting. Uh, we're going to have music as well. Uh, maybe a couple of couple of surprises. Um, it will be, I think, a mixture of individual short readings and commissions and debate around the book. So we'll have folk coming on and on and off stage at various different points. Right. Um, and I, w- I think my role is to talk about some of the male characters surrounding Bella um, that have maybe had a little bit less focus over the years. The story sometimes reduced to two or three characters, but actually there are a whole host of men who come in and out of the story who in different ways seek to dominate and undermine what she wants to do with her own life. Um, There's a fantastic character called Duncan Wedderburn who is presented as a sort of villain at the start and uh, believes that he is a victim of this devilish woman who has driven him completely mad. Uh, Bella calls him Wedder for short. She calls everybody something for short, Um, but uh, Wedder being her understanding uh, of how you might describe sexual intercourse and that Duncan Wedderburn is only ever really interested in wedding, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about uh, about 
Wedderburn, and there's a hypnotist called Charcot as well. Uh, General Sir Aubrey de la Pole Blessington, mm-hmm. was, uh, who appears as uh, a surprise uh, entrance late on in the novel in a, in a, a real church in, on Great Western Road. But so much of it is rooted in Glasgow and even within yards mm-hmm. of where we'll be having Grey Day this year. So part of my role is to, uh, to point to some of that and, and have fun with it. But I, I just think it'll be really, really good fun. And now that we're able to do things like this openly and you can see that this is going to be an annual celebration with a different focus each year it's just a great opportunity to be able to to celebrate Arthur's work we should still be able to question it though we shouldn't be making statues out of human beings here you know he was flawed as we are all flawed Mm -hmm. Uh, we can say that the thing is a value but also ask hard questions about it um so I, i look forward to all of that so i guess we should tell people how they can get involved in Grey Day and how they can come along to the event at Oran Moor in the evening. Yeah, nice and easy. So you can get tickets either from ticketweb.co.uk or from Oran Moor's own website. Or if you prefer old school, you can just walk into Oran Moor and go and ask them um, at their box office. Those are the best places to get tickets. And um, just to be clear on who is on the bill. So uh, Grey Day 3 on Poor Things is hosted by Alan Bissett. There are going to be readings from... Uh, Bernard McClaverty from Chitra Ramaswamy reading from Rich Things, her commissioned response to Poor Things from myself, from the great poet and nonfiction writer Michael Pedersen. And there's an acoustic set from Jill Lorian as well, which will be absolutely beautiful. She used to be inspired on the workshop and goes under Jill Lorian now. So it'll be intimate. It'll be lovely. You can only get a couple of hundred people um, in that space and or and more underneath the Garden of Eden slash glorious night sky. And hopefully it'll be really special. It sounds a great lineup, and I, I'll just say myself, I saw Jill play uh, just recently, and she's one of the best live performers out there. I can't wait to hear an acoustic set from her. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, me too. And so this is going to be an annual thing. There, you know, there will be grey days ahead, or have you not even kind of thought about that? It's just focusing on this now. No, I, th- I think it's one of a number of ways that we want to keep building and protecting Alistair's work the older that I get the more that I feel like it seems self it seems incredibly obvious the sort of thing that I took for granted when I was younger which is that reputations only really grow if there are people who are to whom it really matters to keep growing the thing yes there's word of mouth always and uh, there are all sorts of ways that people can discover the work on their own I'm not suggesting that there aren't but particularly in a country like Scotland, where we don't necessarily have the same infrastructure as in, like, to pick a good example, Ireland, where they really know how to protect their writers and there's a lot more money invested in these things. DIY, ground up, you need to find meaningful ways in order to be able to talk about the work, interrogate and celebrate the work and to recommend it to other people with faith that if you do that, that the work will find new folk and that that will help to give it new life as well. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, that's just something that I want to be in involved in as long as long as I'm alive um, you never you never quite know at the beginning with these things whether they'll take off and of course it was difficult the first year with lockdown and last year it was hybrid um, and this is all in person but I, I think there's lots of signs of what we all believe to be true which is that there's there's plenty of interest and um, uh, no good reason why we should stop now we'll just have to see who they make a film of next year eh yeah, absolutely. That's what we'll do next year. Something leather. That would be something. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. And it's just as well, I've been going back out to events. I went to a lot of Celtic Connection stuff and just the joy of being in a room with other people, listening to, you know, whatever's on stage. It's just been so kind of joyous to do again. It's great. There's, there's, there's nothing like it. I mean, I'm far too affectionate and I have to keep checking myself anyway. But, you know, I'd happily go up and just hug everybody in the room and go, isn't it great to be out? You know, I think that would have been uh, worn off by now. But no, it's still oh, just incredibly yeah. special. Um, and one of the uh, very few gifts of the pandemic, like anything that you lose. I lost my voice for a couple of months recently mm. and I'm so excited to be able to talk. You know, all that period of not being able to do those things in public is a is it's, it's an obvious thing to say, but a real reminder of, of its value. And uh, before I let you go, um, you're writing a book on another uh, great writer. Would it be OK to hear a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've got a couple of books and works at the moment. One is a one is a memoir, um, which has just been finished, and the second is a um, a book about Michelle Faber, um, who is the author of Under the Skin and The Crimson Petal and the White, mm. hundreds hundreds of gorgeous uh, short stories, and who spent twenty five years in the Scottish Highlands from the early nineties until two thousand and sixteen, and. Um, uh, Michelle had read my biography of Alistair Gray and at some point I think just decided to trust me and we started writing each other to each other in great detail after the there was a first conference on Michelle's work up at the University of Highlands and Islands just off the A9 where Italy and under the skin was picking up hitchhikers and um, over so incrementally bit by bit I've started returning to his work more we started talking about it in more detail and then I um, approached a publisher that's been running this series, the writers, writers and their work for like 50 years and more, um, which is these short books that are either an introduction to an overview of an interrogation of or a particular perspective on an individual writer's work. So they're for fans, for students that are studying them. You know, Michelle Faber was one of the first not Scottish born uh writers to really be totally embraced by the Scottish literary community yeah. you know, in really concrete, undeniable ways at the end of the 90s. Yeah. And uh, because he's published consistently with Canongate that whole time, and every single book has been meaningfully different, but he's also had critical and commercial success, which is so rare in so many countries. He's a really fascinating case study. And I already had some of this knowledge about Canongate in the 90s and 2000s through my work on Alistair. And um, I was just like, childishly excited to be able to write a book that um, explored that. So he, he doesn't have a comfort zone. Nearly all of his books are in radically different landscapes and also of radically different genres. Yeah. Uh, each time he starts a book, he has this clear aim of avoiding it being like all of the others. Uh, and yet there's this incredibly narrow emotional territory. He talks about his interest in the search for connection connections between humans and other humans, humans and animals, humans and animals and their environments, and how these connections might be fleeting or even impossible, but the fact that, in his words, we valiantly strive for that connection anyway. And I think if you're going to write a book about another writer, you've got to have an emotional way in yourself. There's got to be something central that you really deeply care about. And I've been fascinated by the idea of compassion and how it works in storytelling for decades. So this is a real opportunity for me to be able to talk about a work, a writer whose work I love, to interview that writer over several years, 
to get access to archives and unpublished books and things that nobody's ever seen, which was so exciting, but also to be able to have that particular focus on compassion. So the book's out in, in August. It's just called oh. Michelle Faber, the writer in his work. And um, uh, yeah, I'll be launching it in the summer. Excellent. Well, Rog, it's so good to, to catch up with you. I'm looking forward to seeing you on the 25th at Orenmore. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ali. As always, really good to talk to you. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Mm -hmm.